This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic. topic In the margin of a book. If the name Rosie Walsh sounds familiar, it could be because I spoke with her in 2018 for her book, Ghosted. Her newest novel is titled The Love of My Life. It may sound like a romantic comedy or maybe an uplifting reflection of marriage and lifelong partnerships, but it's neither. Instead, it's a heartbreaking and emotional thriller. And that's really all I can say about it because this is a spoiler-free interview. Instead of discussing plot and such, I spoke with Rosie about her process. I'm Beth Goulet, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Okay, so once again, we're talking about a book you've written um, without actually talking about a book you've written because I never want to spoil anything. The novel is titled The Love of My Life, and you describe it as a heartbreaking and emotional thriller. And I feel like there are sucker punches and twists throughout. So what do you feel like you can share about your book as far as a description might go? Well, firstly, you are quite right. And this, uh, like Ghosted, has been a nightmare to discuss in interviews or any kind of publicity situation because I can't say much about it. However, I can give a basic premise. So The Love of My Life is about Emma and Leo, who, to all intents and purposes, seem like, you know, a really happy couple who've who've really got it. Uh, When we meet them, Emma's doing really well in her career as a marine biologist and Leo's, you know, very well-regarded obituary writer. They've got a gorgeous three-year-old. They live in a lovely ramshackle old house in, you know, one of the most desirable and ancient parts of London. Um, you know, things things look good. Um, however, at the beginning, Emma is waiting to find out if her cancer treatment has worked. And Leo is coping with all of his feelings in the way he knows best, which is to write an obituary, her obituary. And he's doing that in secret. But in the course of his basic research into you know a few dates in Emma's life and stuff uh, he discovers that she's not who she says she is and so begins a, a, a pretty traumatic journey for them both as Leo realizes that you know the love of his life is a story and um, Emma has to confront a past so awful that she spent her entire adult life burying it. You know, I listened back to the conversation we had about your book, Ghosted, and that was in 2018. And Mm. you told me you had only started writing your next book, but you described it. And it sounds like you didn't change course at all. I mean, it's, it's exactly as you described it. Did you find that it changed much as you wrote it? Or did you just have this premise and this plot and you just moved forward with it? Well, that's fascinating. Gosh, (laughs) it's sort of like turning up and chatting to myself. Um, Four years ago hearing that, that's sort of quite goosebumpy. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess bear in mind that what I've just given you is, you know, the elevator pitch, <laughs> which <true>. I had <laughs> then. <laughs> and quite a lot has happened since. So, you know, I can when I talk about the plot of the, this book, I can only do what I just did, which is to sort of do the setup at the beginning that readers will get to within the first few chapters. So, yes, that never changed. And I'm glad it didn't. But the ending changed a million times. I mean, when I set out to write this book, Emma was going to die. She was always going to die at the beginning of the book. She was a dying woman. And, you know, the the race against time was Leo to find out who on earth she actually was and for her to prove to him that she, you know, in spite of being a complete stranger, is nonetheless, you know, the the love of his life. Uh, That was a bit too dark. Um, I think one of the early drafts, I sent it to my agent and she said, I I just can't read this. It's just too awful (laughs) knowing from the beginning that she's going to die. And 
I was quite annoyed, but you know, I think I accepted that she was right. And actually that was the first of quite a few sort of darkness audits. <laughs> My American editor, um, Pam Dorman, she, um, she persuaded me to rewrite the final third um, because it was just too dark. And I'm really glad that she did because she was right. It was too dark and it's still dark and still quite tense and dramatic, but just in a very different way. So I have like an inside baseball question here. So you have an American editor, but this book is also being published in the UK in a few months. Is it the same book? I mean, how does that work? Do you have a UK editor for this book as well? Absolutely, yeah. And um, she's been working on it longer than my American editor because, so in the in the US, um, my understanding is, and you know, maybe it's just an excuse that was given to me, but my understanding is that generally writers don't get two book deals. Whereas in the UK, they tend to uh, for commercial fiction. And uh, when I wrote Ghosted, which was called The Man Who Didn't Call in the UK, um, it was bought on a two book deal by my British editor. Whereas here in the States, there were two separate book deals. So there was no way around my American editor coming onto it much later because, you know, she couldn't acquire a book that I hadn't yet written. So, yeah, in the end, their involvement has probably been equal. Um, but my UK editor has had to, she's had a tougher job, really. <laughs> she's had to deal with my crippling self-doubt as a writer and my obsession with, you know, a, a twist or a better twist or a different kind of twist or, you know, my absolute determination that this book is not working and I should ditch it. Um She's, you know, she's had to deal with all of the handholding and the, the authorial <laughs> madness, whereas the book that my American editor acquired was, you know, she acquired it from a much more confident author who'd polished it quite a few times and it had been through several edits. <laughs> not that, you know, not that it's an easy job. And um, both of them gave it a very incisive, thorough edit. In fact, several. So I imagine you had to do some research to make your characters seem so real. Because as you mentioned, Emma is a marine biologist and Leo is an obituary writer. Can you talk to me about how you went about learning the tricks of their trades? And can you tell me what is a death cafe? Hmm. <laughs> uh, so at the beginning of the book, obviously, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was, um, I was going to set the plot up with Emma dying. You know, from the beginning, we knew she was going to die. That, that was non-negotiable. Um, so I did a lot of uh, research into death. Well, not just death, but also end of life, um, which is not the same thing at all. And I spoke to so many different people. And I started out actually with an academic researcher who was, her academic research was into end of life uh, with a bit of death, but mostly she was about end of life. And, you know, she opened up my mind to, a, you know, to a whole community of people who, who work within end of life life and death and um there's death doulas you know in the same way that you can hire a doula to help you give birth you can hire a doula to help you die actually and have just somebody with you who's not a doctor or a nurse or but just a companion who has done this many 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 times before and can hold your hand and give you encouragement and support and you know bring knowledge to the situation without needing to be a medical professional um, and I was really struck by that idea and you know it's one one iteration manuscript involved a death doula but that disappeared death cafes are sort of informal gatherings of people who come to talk about death and they're not uh, sort of self-help groups for people who are grieving they are very much about the business of death and dying 
And, you know, the ones that I went to, we talked about all sorts of things. You know, there's a line in the in the Love of My Life about Emma looking up wicker coffins on Amazon. <laughs> that is something that I heard in a death cafe. I, I could not believe my ears. Um, I learned so much about the necessity of, of preparing ourselves for, for death. You know, it's something that most of us don't or won't do because we're so afraid. Um, and it's it's still a sort of a taboo subject. So I guess in the way that mental health wasn't talked about until recently, death just doesn't doesn't crop up at your average dinner party. Um, so as a result of all of this research, I'm now you know fully prepared for my death. You know I have a will in place, but I also have lots of documents and letters, and you know it's very, I've made very clear what I would want to happen, to, not just to me, but you know all of the small things I own. Um, and I'm really glad. <laughs> Because, you know, it, 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 it would be a shame to leave your family behind grieving and not having any idea what you would have wanted and try and make those decisions in such awful circumstances. So all of that death research was absolutely fascinating and largely pointless. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> the storyline didn't make it. Um, the research into Emma and Leo's jobs was just wonderful. I loved it. I very nearly ran off to become a marine biologist and an obituary writer, although I'm not sure either profession would have had me. The book started with an idea I'd had about an obituary writer. And I plunged myself into research into that world quite early, just freeform research actually, to sort of help me figure out what the plot would be. Because, you know, if I'm wandering around on a news floor with my notebook, which is what I did a lot for this book, ideas will just come. So I discovered this amazing world of obituary writers out there. There's a massive community of them. They even have an obits conference. People fly in from all over the world every year to America to meet and talk about obits. I love it. And the research for Emma was, it was tricky. <laughs> I wanted her to be a marine biologist largely for selfish reasons, because I really wanted to bring the natural world in as a third character. And so I decided to make her marine biologist, of course, because I'm not a scientist. I had no idea that there's about a hundred different specialisms within that umbrella. So I conducted a lot of interviews, did a lot of reading, did a lot of accosting poor and suspecting people on Twitter and eventually came up with her career, which is that of an intertidal ecologist. But the research was tricky because, as Leo says, you know, being stuck in a dinner party with a bunch of marine biologists is stuff of nightmares. So I kept having to ask them to simplify and simplify and simplify and simplify and eventually realise that they can't. <laughs> there aren't layman scientific terms they don't exist for good reason you mentioned mental illness and your book touches a bit on mental illness and I won't mention the character or characters but um, you know some suffer from episodes or times with a capital T can you talk to me about how you approached writing about characters with mental illness and, and what kind of research you had to do to get it right that's a really good question. Um, I mean, without giving lots away, there are some major mental health storylines and less major mental health storylines. Um, the major ones did obviously require a lot of very careful research because under no circumstances did I want to sensationalise or over-dramatize something that, you know, that does happen to people and is life-changing and not in a good way. Um, so that, that research was tricky because obviously a lot of people who've been through that sort of stuff are very reticent to talk to people who work in any kind of entertainment industry and I don't blame them. 
And yet others are open. You know, I remember interviewing a friend who'd been through one of these things. And I just remember us sitting in the pub crying into our pints. <laughs> pints of cider about, or hard cider as you guys call it, um, about, you know, about her experiences. I spoke to a lot of psychiatrists and community mental health workers, so many different kinds of people, so many different kinds of people, all of whom were hugely helpful. But really, there is no substitute for speaking to somebody who's been through it. And that 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 was the hardest thing, finding people who are willing to talk. And um, for the less severe mental health storylines, a lot of it was just a process of observation. And I think, you know, some of the detail of, you know, the darkness that certain characters, well, especially Emma, um, experience were, you know, I, largely born out of where I was at for a lot of the time that I was writing this book. You know, I was... I, I had my first child and then I was pregnant with my second child. We had a pandemic. I had a brush with serious illness myself. You know, a lot happened um, and it took me to some of the darkest places I've known. So even though there were no immediate and direct parallels between my life and, and Emma's life, I think a lot of that, just that insidious misery and anxiety that she experiences at certain times in the novel really fed into into my prose. When we spoke a few years ago for Ghosted, you told me that you tend to not be really sad about what you've written until you've reached the end of writing it and then you can engage. And I wonder how you do that because throughout, you know, the emotion to me was palpable, especially Leo's. So does does what you told me regarding Ghosted still stand for the love of your life? I mean, how are you able to put emotion on the page in such a way and not feel it as you write it? That's a really interesting question. And yes, I didn't do much crying, you're right, until I'd finished it. Again, it's so fascinating hearing the answers I gave you four years ago. <laughs> no, that's that's really interesting. And yes, you're quite right, I actually. Or I was quite right back then, however <laughs> you want to look at it, because I didn't really have those unbearable feelings in my chest reading those words until they were kind of done. And I think that's because, I don't know if you write, Beth, but, um, you know, when the first draft of anything is rough and it's quite cheesy and, you know, and <laughs> inelegant and, you know, there's not much detail or specificity, you know, the, the emotion is very much sort of reported rather than deeply felt or, you know, described. Um, and so it's, and, and, and also, do you know what? I think the key thing is thinking about this question is that I don't know and truly care about and love my characters until I've been with them for at least two years. And so, you know, writing one of the scenes that I can imagine would have, you, you would have found extremely emotional. You know, I, thinking about that for me as a writer, it was only, yeah, quite a long way down the line when I really, really knew that character and knew how utterly devastating that, that would be that I felt that awful sort of punch in the stomach emotion that I really hope readers will feel. Well, it sounds like you've got it. So that's good. That's a good start. That's one reader. I'll take that. In the epilogue, one of your narrators, Emma, invites readers to think about an event in their past they would do anything to erase. And it made me wonder, you know, how many people try and fail or try and succeed to do that, especially in this, you know, oversharing informational era, I wonder how many people could actually try and succeed. So 
I imagine you thought about, you know, secrets quite a bit during your writing process. And I wonder, did that make you less trusting of others? Hmm. So I had, um, I had an incident a, a couple of months ago where I was, I was sitting in the driving seat with my partner. He was driving a car and he asked me to check his phone for a message that he was waiting for. And, um, as I held his phone in my hand, I thought, you know, quite rhetorically, gosh, you know, what would it be like if I saw something in here that I wasn't meant to see, you know, in the way that Leo starts uncovering information about Emma. And, and I, I thought about it rhetorically, but I have to say there was, there was no part of me that thought, oh my gosh, you know, what, what if my partner would, did that, you know, what if he was doing that? So I guess in that respect, I'm lucky in that I'm a, in a relationship in which I have absolute cellular level trust. I've never, never doubted him. You know, he, he goes on a job where he goes away for weeks and, you know, spends weeks with other people, <laughs> including other women. And there has never been a moment where I've doubted him. So, no, I don't think it necessarily made me less trustful of people, but it really sharpened my awareness of the way of identity and the way that we tell stories about ourselves, the way we try to curate our lives and the agency we have over the story that goes out about us. You know, that who, who is Rosie Walsh? How much agency do I have over what other people think Rosie Walsh is? I guess I became a lot more aware of that. The stories we tell about ourselves with the intention of making people feel a certain way about us rather than the stories we tell because we're trying to get away with something or we're trying to conceal something. I, I, if that makes sense, that distinction. So the love of my life was announced as the March Good Morning America book club selection last week. And is that the equivalent of, you know, like, I don't know, I've heard of like the Richard and Judy book club in the UK. Um, are you gaining an onslaught of new readers, you know, and followers on social because of that announcement? I think I probably am. I'm, <laughs> as anyone who's followed me for longer than five minutes will know, I'm pretty bad at social media. <laughs> I mean, I've been hiding from Instagram for a couple of years now. I'm just generally a lot happier without it. But I've been back with a vengeance for the last couple of weeks, and it's just been a, a ridiculous patchwork of, you know, sort of failed half half posts and posts that I've then had to take down or posts that I tried to make <laughs> and couldn't. So many like failed stories and reels which I've saved to the wrong place. I am I am frankly a disaster. So I'm not sure. All I know is that last night I got a call very late to say that I had charted in the top ten in the Sunday Times bestseller list. It, sorry, in the New York Times bestseller list, which was the most extraordinary news and the most exciting thing that could possibly have happened to me. And from about midnight last night, I lost control of my Instagram. I, I can't actually read the comments quickly enough and, you know, the messages and the, you know, the stories. So the answer is I actually don't know because I have now finally lost control. <laughs> it's coming in too fast. I can't, I can't keep up, which is a nice place to be. Yeah. So what about the feedback? You know, are, are readers questioning themselves? Like how well do they know the persons they married? <laughs> Well, it's funny, actually, because if one of the sort of review quotes or blurbs that I got from another author said that it really made her sort of wonder about her husband. And as I said earlier, you know, it's not really 
had that effect on me, but she's not the first, you know, obviously I'm only beginning to hear from people who finish books. It's only been out a week, but actually a lot of people that I have heard from have said exactly that, that it's really made them wonder, you know, what their partner could have hidden or could still be hiding. I mean, we've all got secrets, haven't we? There are things about ourselves that we will take to the grave. And they don't need to be serious things or big things or even terrible things, but they're still things we're not prepared to share with other people. Um, So, you know, if we're all carrying secrets, why, you know, what's not to say that some of us aren't carrying, you know, fundamental, basic identity secrets? That was Rosie Walsh, author of the book, The Love of My Life, which was published by Pamela Dorman Books. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.